Hi, and welcome to the Day One Podcast. My name is Simon Moran, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Mr. Rick Smith of Axon. Rick, how are you doing today? I'm living the dream, having a great day. Thanks. <laughs> so the concept behind Day One is really to take you back to early stages of your career and talk about how you advanced through your journey and really ended up to where you are today and discuss and maybe give a little bit of insight and advice to some of our listeners who are you know trying to do the same thing. So if you want to start off, um, maybe tell us where you were raised and a little bit about how that area shaped where you are, are today. Yeah, so I was born in California, Santa Monica, Okay, and then moved around a lot. Uh, went from there to Denver, then back to Northern Los Angeles, uh, Boston, San Francisco, and then ultimately Phoenix to finish high school. Um, and then even in different cities, like when we lived in North Los Angeles, I went to three different elementary schools. We kept moving around a lot. Right. So uh, I actually think it was a pretty interesting formative childhood for me. I just got used to change um, and grew to crave a certain amount of change in my life. Okay. Uh, which I've actually tried to do that a little bit with my kids, uh, myself, because I think the world is changing quickly and the better we can adapt to a changing environment, the typically the better off we're going to do. Right. And and what was that experience like, you know, going state to state, school to school? I mean, you don't really have a chance to involve yourself too much with friends or the community and things like that. How, how have you seen that that's maybe helped or hurt you in business uh, today? Well, it gave me an opportunity to reinvent myself. Right. You know, when you go to a new school, the great news is the whatever people thought of you historically you know, what maybe you didn't even like about yourself, you had an opportunity as a fresh start. Okay. Uh, like, for example, uh, my legal name's Patrick. Uh, I was raised as Rick, then switched to Pat at one point, <laughs> then went to another school, went back to Rick. Right. Uh, you know, part of that was just a bit of a process of reinventing myself. Sure. And figuring out what you liked as well. So um, you said you went to Saguaro High School. Um, what Chaparral. Was, oh, Chaparral. Chaparral <laughs> yeah. is what it was. Um, from there, uh, what made you or what was your direction going into college? Where'd you end up going and what was that process like for you? Uh, so I ended up going to Harvard. Okay. Um, didn't really want to, candidly. My, my mom pressured me to do it. Uh, almost for bragging rights among the parents, <laughs> okay. uh, candidly. And I, I didn't think that was super cool because it was a lot of work to do the application. Right. Uh, but my dad asked me to do it as a favor, and, and so I did. And then ultimately I got in, and then you get stuck with the question of, well, if I don't go, nobody's ever going to believe I got in, and I'll be that guy <laughs> for the rest of my life saying, oh, yeah, I got in, but I didn't go. So sure. I decided to uh, – decided to. You know, take the adventure and, and go to Harvard. So I went there and then uh, afterwards to Chicago and then ultimately Belgium for uh, grad school. Now, you did have the power to choose what you were going to study at Harvard and you went into neuroscience. So talk to us a little bit about how that influenced or how that influences what you do today. Yeah. So uh, I studied biology in the broad context. Okay. Then of coursework in, in neurobio. Harvard typically has sort of broad majors, they don't let you really specialize. But I was very interested in the human machine interface. Uh, you know, I grew up watching Star Wars and, and Star Trek and the Six Million Dollar Man, which you guys have probably never seen. <laughs> you ever heard of the Six Million Dollar Man? I don't believe I have. All right. <laughs> Check it out on YouTube. Definitely. Uh, it was a series from the 70s. Anyway, uh, I was very interested with the idea of robotic limbs and sort of machine enhanced human performance. So when I wrote my essay, uh, for the college entrance application on what I wanted to do, it was I wanted to work on 
bionic limbs effectively uh, wow. robotic limbs in machines that can interface to the human body okay and what it, what in college drove you or what experiences did, that you have that uh ultimately made you end up here and meeting um uh jack uh cover um and having essentially established taser in 19 in the early 1990s um and have it build up to what it is today yeah so uh in graduate school, I was in Belgium, and I was interfacing with, uh, you know, all the European kids, mm -hmm. and many of them expressed a fear that they didn't want to come to the United States because they saw so much violence on television, sure. and they'd heard about the American, you know, gangs and gun violence. And as I was trying to defend, you know, my home, hey guys, it's not like that. I live in this great place, Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, it turns out a couple friends of mine were shot and killed in a road rage incident. It happened right in the parking lot of the Hyatt okay. uh, down in Ganey Ranch. Wow. And for me, that was pretty shocking in that, you know, wow, this even reaches out to quaint little Scottsdale. Right. And pretty much anybody you talk to within one or two degrees of separation, they know somebody who's been shot and killed. So it touches all of us. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, the light bulb came on as I started thinking about this. Well, wait a minute. You know, as I read about it, gun control is highly divisive. Uh, is an issue politically. You know, some people believe, you know, it can never work or it's unconstitutional. Other people say we haven't gone far enough. But as I looked at this, I think the fundamental way we solve problem is through innovation. Okay. It's pretty rare that regulation ultimately is the sole you know, thing that solves an issue. Um, and as I looked at it as a bit of a science fiction buff, <laughs> wait a minute, if we had Captain Kirk's phaser, who would even think about firing bullets at people anymore. Right. You know, there was a day when we used to carry swords around on our hip, but the world progressed. Uh, and so I became very passionate about this idea that uh, we could develop next generation weapons that perform the legitimate purpose for which we accept weapons, and that is to stop a threat. It just happens that today those weapons have this downside that it ends up killing the other person. Uh, if we could tease those two apart so we could have weapons that could effectively and reliably stop somebody without killing them, we could end up in a, living in a world that's a much better place where even the guy who killed my two friends actually is, a, is interesting as a case study because he had no prior criminal history. He, it wasn't a robbery. It was just an incident, an argument that spun out of control. And my two friends were, you know, they're playing college football. They were kind of big guys. Mm -hmm. And this guy had a gun clearly for self-defense. And as the situation spun out of control, the gun comes out. He took two lives and now he's spending his life in prison. So it's a triple tragedy on all fronts. Right. If he'd had another weapon where he could have immobilized them and gotten away to safety, you know, Corey and Todd would be alive and this guy would still be out living his life. Mm -hmm. Now, were there any uh, prior to Taser, were there any other prototypes or crazy ideas that you had that maybe haven't come to fruition that you thought could be a similar tool to uh, yeah. aid? So my original idea was to do a shotgun shell um, that would be a wireless Taser where you'd pack everything inside this projectile and then you could launch it remotely. Mm -hmm. I, I read, obviously, about the Tasers that used wires, etc., um, and as I was doing my research, it turns out there are not many people on the face of planet Earth that can tell you how much electricity it takes to paralyze somebody. Mm. It's just not something that people do a lot of testing on. <laughs> okay. And so as I was researching it, I discovered that the guy who invented the taser lived in Tucson, Arizona. So I 411'd him. This is pre-Google. You would call <laughs> directory assistance. I got his name and number. And next thing I know, I'm standing on his front porch in Tucson uh, and... It was a bit of a scene like out of a Marvel 
you know, Marvel movie where yeah. I'm knocking on the door and then this mad 73-year-old mad scientist guy opens the door and spread all across his house. He's got these prototype electric weapons dating back over 30 years. Mm-hmm. It was like a museum of taser history. You know, he had a buffalo gun they'd created for large animals. Uh, he had the the covert version they'd built that looked like a cigarette pack and then ultimately the commercial version of the taser that looked a bit like a dust buster uh, vacuum cleaner out of the 80s, kind of this big boxy device. And uh, I immediately fell in love with his idea. Uh, he couldn't really answer the question whether my shotgun idea would work or not because right. he hadn't done the level of testing either. So we decided to shell that and instead work on a next generation of the taser weapon. Now, interestingly, about 10 years later, we did come back and we did the research to see if the shotgun shell would work. Mm-hmm. And it did. And mm-hmm. we actually created a product with it. Ultimately, it worked great in the lab. Unfortunately, it didn't perform out in the field very well. And right. we ended up discontinuing that product. Okay. So, uh, yeah, one thing I tell a lot of people is, you know, you've got to be flexible when you think about your business plans. Uh, much like battle plans, they typically change the minute the first shot is fired. Uh, and so the, uh, directionally, you know, I knew where we wanted to go. But, you know, we had many twists and turns along the way where we had to adjust our plan. Right. And, and obviously, uh, speaking of today, you've built it into a highly successful company. Looking back um, then, w- did you have a specific idea in mind in the direction you wanted to go as far as working with police departments and law enforcement? And that's what you really wanted to provide them? Or what were some of your ideas there? No, we, we started in the consumer business. Uh, so if you look at the magnitude of the problem, every year in the United States, police officers shoot and kill a few hundred people. Now, those are all difficult, tragic situations, but just in terms of scale, it's a few hundred people. American private citizens shoot and kill about 35,000 of each other. So orders of magnitude bigger problem and we could have a bigger influence. So we went right after the consumer market, um, but that failed. Uh, We found that consumers were very skeptical about the technology and ultimately, we believed we had to pivot and go into police work to prove the technology worked in a professional user market right. before consumers would adopt it. So today we still do sell taser weapons to consumers. It's a small part of the business compared to police. Uh, police and military is like 95% of the business today. Okay. And and what did that process look like for you as far as going and presenting these tools that these law enforcement officers could use? Were they initially open to it or were they skeptical as well? Uh, everybody was skeptical. You know, when, when we started with this idea that, hey, we're going to build electric weapons to incapacitate people, <laughs> you know. Even my best friends from college would laugh at me. They thought it was ridiculous. Right. Uh, and when we went into police work, you know, cops are inherently very skeptical people. Um, and so we ultimately had to prove to them that the weapons were going to work. Uh, and candidly, some of their skepticism was well-placed. Early versions of the taser were not as effective as they needed to be. Um, and so ultimately we had to, um, you know, we had to fix the underlying technology before we entered police work. But once we did, right. boom, then it just took off. And so what were some of those initial road bumps? Was it just consistency of voltage or how? what were some of the issues that you were overcoming? Uh, it was just generally underpowered. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rodney King, the famous Los Angeles motorist that was beaten by the LAPD in the early 90s, Rodney King was shot with an LAPD taser and it did not work. Mm. And so the officers then went to their batons and they were striking him excessively with the batons, which led to all the out, outcry and, and outburst over that incident. Um, but that was sort of the most public use of the taser everybody knew of in the, in the late 90s. Um, and the problem was 
that they had never done really the underlying biological testing. Uh, so even Jack, the original inventor, they had done some basic testing on volunteers. But if you really want to know how much electricity it takes to incapacitate a person, you've got to do some fairly aggressive testing that you wouldn't do on people. You, you, we use anesthetized pigs sure. uh, because their muscles are pretty similar to ours. Uh, and with that, you can really... Uh, so we actually ended up doing the foundational testing mm-hmm. using pigs, where once we, once we started doing that testing, very quickly we were able to discover exactly what the secret sauce was. Okay. Because what we want to do is we don't want to just cause pain. We actually want to physically paralyze your muscles, right. which means we're going after the alpha motor neurons, the, the nerves that control your muscle movement. Mm-hmm. And that's something we could measure pretty precisely once we figured out the test apparatus. So that was the key. First, we had to figure out how much electricity does it take to do what we need it to do to the body of a large mammal, like a man or a pig. And then we could build that into a product and then, you know, manufacture it, ship it. Um, but it's that foundational piece that nobody had ever really done before we did it. Right. And, and today we're sitting in Scottsdale um, at the headquarters of Axon. And when we first walked in, it's an awesome experience, a really open environment, really cool. The, the front doors, you know, really interesting coming through. How I've noticed that you guys open you're an open office, you work together a lot. How do you drive a positive company culture to continue to build the growth of your company? Well, I think a lot of it comes from just having a phenomenal mission. You know, the fact that you everybody here clearly knows that what we're working on is trying to bring about less violence in the world to uh, whether it's help police or private citizens protect themselves uh, and to ultimately reduce and ultimately finish the process of, of people killing each other. In fact, that's why I wrote this book that we just published earlier this year called The End of Killing. Yep. Uh, it is our manifesto that uh, we don't believe that we need to always live in a world where we just accept that we are the homicidal naked apes that kill each other. Right. Uh, right. And in fact, the course of human history over the past several hundred years has proven we've become far less violent than we used to be a few hundred years ago. And so we're the tech company that's building the tech to take away the excuse of why we still kill each other in these edge cases today. And when you have that crystal clear emission, I think it's very easy for people to rally around it. And, and what is your leadership approach on your end? Are, are you someone that's helping direct a, a lot of actions every day? Or are you just letting other managers and people kind of facilitate things? Yeah, so I've had to learn to let go. Um, this is, uh, I think, the, probably the toughest transition I've had to make in my personal life. From founder to CEO is a big transition. When you're a founder, you have to be in the middle of everything, right? There's nobody to delegate to. Um, and, uh, you know, early on, you've got to pivot, 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 pivot. You're making decisions and moving very quickly. And if you're trying to delegate that through a large team, it's just not going to work. I think that's why a lot of like successful CEOs who then try, try to go be entrepreneurs, track record isn't usually very good. Sure. Because if you're used to managing huge teams with lots of resources, totally different skill set. Well, similarly, as the company grew up, I was in the middle of everything and I was getting completely burned out and I was probably driving everybody around me nuts because I was in the (laughs) middle of everybody's business. Right. Um, And so I went through a reckoning where I nearly broke myself. Uh, You know, I was totally burned out and considered at one point whether it was time to just pack it in and retire. Um, And as part of that, I actually took a year and I moved to Europe uh, to help set up our European sales organization. Okay. That felt a little more entrepreneurial. And for me, it was a chance to kind of take a, a bit of a sabbatical. 
Uh, and what that forced me to do was figure out how to delegate all the stuff I was doing every day. Okay, I'm up, it's 11 p.m. on a Wednesday. Why am I writing our web pages? Hmm, <laughs> maybe this isn't something I should be doing. Sure. Uh, and you go through about 50 of those, and that really forced me to learn how to delegate, to put a lot more focus on hiring and getting the right people in the right seats. Uh, and then, actually, life became much easier for me again. All of a sudden, I loved my job. I wasn't burning out. I wasn't having as much conflict at work. Uh, so today, uh, I have a team of really operational executives that run the business day to day. So, for example, I really don't do personnel reviews anymore. Um, that level of detail. Uh, and, and by the way, that's where a lot of the stress comes from right. uh, in running a business. So uh, now that's allowed me to sort of pull up and look at, OK, what is our 10 year roadmap? And then I'm constantly working with the creative folks on what are the products we're going to build? What are the stories we're going to tell? Uh, and then day-to-day -day operations is being handled by you know other folks. And, and being a public company, what are you looking for on your end to to kind of keep that energy? Is it is it constant growth? What what gives you energy every day when you wake up? Yeah, uh, for us, I think it's all about solving big problems. I think you know if you look at like Maslow's hierarchy, right? Self-actualization is at the top. Uh, so we've had enough financial success. Uh, you know, I don't actually need to work anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, what's going to get you out of bed in the morning is, okay, what, uh, it, all of us are like the kid that brings home the, you know, the painting they did at school and you want mom to hang it on the fridge, right? Okay, what is the thing I'm spending my time creating? What are the problems we're solving? And, and our mission uh, gives us an opportunity to work on just these amazing challenges. You know, we're working with police agencies on taser weapons and body cameras that are designed to sort of reduce all the friction between police and the public. Uh, and now we've amassed this massive data set. Uh, we're running 65 petabytes, 65 million gigabytes of video, police video, and it's growing like three to four petabytes a month. Wow. Um, so now the question is, okay, how, what can we unlock? What's hidden in that data that could help us maybe identify potentially bad cops before they hurt somebody or help identify criminal activity? How do we do it in a way that doesn't violate everybody's privacy by turning this into you know, the surveillance state? So the fact we get to work on these really gnarly, challenging, technical, ethical, legal, societal problems, I mean, that's really fun. Definitely. And and in speaking of that, it's it sounds like it's really exciting and things like that. But if, like you said, you get to that stage of where you're getting to burnout, what are some of the things that you do now to kind of, you know, give that relief? And what are maybe some things you do around Arizona or to kind of step out of work for a minute before you have to reapproach? Well, I've got kids. Okay. Uh, so that's the, my number one therapy. I recommend uh, kids are just fantastic. Uh, they, they really just give you an opportunity to unplug in a totally different way. And uh, so uh, I, I truly love fatherhood. It's just a joy. And it's a great way, you know, uh, actually, a, a buddy of mine plays video games, it was telling me like, video games are great for him, because it forces you to concentrate, right? Whereas when you're watching TV or a movie, you can still be Passive, thinking about, yeah. you know, background work stuff. Kids can be similar, right? They can gross <laughs> you in different activities that get your mind off of, of work. And one thing we've done here is, um, I actually have come to believe Having gone through burnout myself, burnouts are not productive people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think too many times today, people have this expectation that you need to work 24-7 and you need to prove that you're the hardest working person you know, in your team. I think that's actually not true. Uh, we don't track vacation time here. We trust everybody, hey, get your work done and get, get the heck out of here. We're not going to track what, you know, 
how much vacation time you take. Now, if you're a slacker, you're not going to last here long. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll move you out whether or not you're taking vacation time. But I find it's it's more you need to be pushing people. Hey, unplug, put your phone on do not disturb at night. Turn it off for at least one day on the weekends and really unplug. Just like Olympic athletes don't overtrain, right? They work really hard and then they recover. Sure. I think our similarly, you know, we're all organisms and our brains need a chance to recover. And ultimately, I think that makes us better problem solvers and and more functionally effective when we are engaged. And and where are you looking for top talent uh, as far as Axon is concerned? How are you finding people that are able to come in and, and help you grow your company? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, if I could go back and give myself one piece of advice when I was 23 starting this place, it would be to spend a lot more time on talent than anything else. You hire one great person and you've effectively just done more than you could do in your entire career because you've just doubled yourself or maybe even more in that functional area. Right. Um, where I'd say early on, I was much too focused on, I've got to be the smartest guy in the room solving every problem. And that doesn't scale well. Uh, so today we we do a lot of recruiting right out of universities. I love getting uh, fresh young minds before they get polluted working <laughs> at some other company and give them an opportunity to grow here. We have a leadership development program where we rotate people around uh, both in engineering and in other functions. And then we do recruit from, you know, top tier companies where we're we're bringing in senior level talent who can teach us things, you know, from whether it's an Amazon or a Microsoft or a Google. Um, you know, I think if there's one thing I've learned, it's that you got to keep learning like you never have it perfect. We, we you know, I, I'm excited about how the company's functioning today. There's a lot of things that are not working right and and there's just con- you have to continually be reinventing yourself and in closing here talk to us a little bit about what the next five years looks like for axon oh the next five years is going to be amazing um well let me actually run it out within the next 10 years 10 years okay uh we will create a weapon that outperforms a police pistol full stop so right now the taser is still a little brother to you know, the police pistol. Right. And if a police officer is going into a situation, they don't know what's on the other side of the door. They have a gun in their hand. That is a terrible situation to put a human being in. Because now door opens, something's moving, something's pointing at you. You have to basically decide to take a life or not in a, with imperfect information. When you are stressed, you know, your heart's racing, you have an adrenaline surge. Um, so our goal is not to take away anything but to give officers a non-lethal weapon so capable that it's actually, it'll be preferred because it'll be more effective at stopping that threat. And that's going to be a game changer. So that's on the taser weapon side. And then on the software side, we have the most interesting data set in the world with 60 million gigabytes of police audio and video. So we've been building out an artificial intelligence team led by a former senior researcher from Uber who was working on their self-driving car program to how do we actually train our cameras and our software using AI to do all of the reporting for police so they don't have to sit at a keyboard all day. Right. That's right? the one thing that I hear that they hate the most is all that paperwork. It's a gigantic waste of time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely. they need to do it because you have to document these interactions, but that is a perfect application for transcription and other AI machine vision to be able to basically look through a video, pull out the key photos, you know, scan a driver's license, fill out names and addresses, be able to dictate your narrative very quickly. And it makes it very black and white too. It's like, well, I said this, or I did this, or the officer said this or did this. Well, it's on video. So there's really nothing you can do to say otherwise too. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's like 
if you watch the Super Bowl, you understand what happened way better than if you spent 10 weeks reading about it, mm-hmm. right? There's, you can experience what's happening. So we, we believe we already have the best police records in the world. It's the audio video record. Now we just need to pull out the structured information uh, for them. So if we make the police pistol obsolete and obsolete paperwork in the next 10 years, we'll effectively double the nation's police force and make them more effective and more fair uh, because we're actually documenting how they're doing their job to make sure that they're treating people of different ethnicities equally, right? I mean, there's Certainly. so many problems we can solve. Uh, and what's awesome now is we have the resources to do it. We've already got the relationships with the police. We've got the network of sensors and data. So now it's it's like there's just so many problems we get to work on. Right, it's like, okay, yeah, which yeah. one do we go after first? Sure. And how, just, just one last thing, how do you prioritize exactly what that looks like as far as what that first action step is? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, we spend a lot of time with our customers. I do a lot of CEO roundtables with okay. police chiefs where uh, these are really fun. It's one of my favorite parts of the job now. So I'll sit with a uh, police chief and their senior staff and we'll do a two and a half hour session of, okay, here's all these awesome ideas. We could do this, we could do that. And then I have them taking live surveys. So they're giving us feedback on what's the most valuable. And then ultimately we come out of that, we go into our annual planning process. And what we're looking for is what is the most valuable thing for our customers that we can do with the lowest level of investment and the fastest, right? You want to find the highest return on investment and you go after those first. Mm -hmm. And as you solve those problems, boom, that generates revenue and profits and then you can plow that in to the next one. So it's all of balancing highest uh, b- highest net uh, reward per unit of investment. Okay. Well, I encourage you to go check out The End of Killing by Rick Smith. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate and you're doing a lot of great work for, uh, for the state of Arizona and the country at large. So we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for joining the Day One Podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me on.